Hey everyone, welcome back to the Blessed Child Podcast. This is your host Renee, aka Run Robot. Welcome back to season five. It is May 9th, and I have just witnessed another mass wedding and the opening of the second palace and in Champyong and the opening up of Hakjahan tapping into the tourist industry by buying an electric yacht for Champyong to attract up to 2 million tourists a year to Champyong Lake. This is a lot of triggering information for me, so it brought me back to Bless Child podcast. I was going to wait a little bit before releasing season 5, but there's just some information I want to deconstruct because if you're like me, this might be overwhelming for you to hear about. So let's just let's just start with the mass wedding. As you know, from listening to this podcast, I attended the mass wedding when I was 20, 21, 20, something like that. I think I just turned 20, actually, years old. Um, and it took me up until now, so 13, I don't know, 14 years after the mass wedding to have the words to be able to say what I'm going to say. And I'm just going to start with facts because... Let's face it, there's too many emotions on the table, so let's just let's just go with facts. So, when I attended the mass wedding in Chum- in Korea at the Kintex Stadium in 2010, I didn't realize how much autonomy I was giving up to be in the mass wedding. I thought I was blessed with an opportunity, and it's taken me this long over a decade to realize that when it comes to a wedding, it's a very personal event. I've been to many weddings since my mass wedding and I've realized, you know, people actually intentionally set the date. (laughs) They pick a day that's important to them in the season that that they favor, that they wanna remember forever. They pick a date that's important to them. They also pick a location and, and set that location months in advance so that all their loved ones can attend this wedding, this spectacular day that they chose in a place that's usually revered or central to where the family is so that most people can attend or in a vacation spot so that everybody can have a memorable experience in this very intentionally set place. I didn't even realize that Actually, bridesmaids also pick dresses that are color-coordinated. You color-coordinate with the bride. You intentionally set the theme for the wedding based on the bride and groom's choices and their preferences. And it's a party, and it's, it's really wonderful. You also, the bride and groom also sets the music. Sometimes they ask their guests what kind of music they'd like to dance to because they're planning a party with all of their favorite people and all of their preferred loved ones. (laughs) So, I mean, there's a lot of choice and there's a lot of thought that goes into a real wedding. They also pick their favorite foods that are culturally in line with who they are and what they want to celebrate and how they want to celebrate. And the merging of these two people is is reflected in this very intentionally set wedding. And I've been to many, many weddings. I've been to biker weddings. I've been to botanical garden weddings in Pennsylvania. I've been to backdoor weddings at a barn in the middle of a desert. I've been to these weddings. I've been, and, and it's taken me a long time to come up with these words. Wow, this is choice. This is their choice. And these are the choices they made. And this is how they want to celebrate. And they invited me. Wow. And I I flash back to my mass wedding where I had none of those choices. I didn't set the day. I didn't set the music. I didn't set even the vows. I didn't have a choice in any of it, not even the food. And that's what I think about when I think of all those people who went to the mass wedding a couple days ago is that they really didn't get a choice. 
Now, you might come back and say, well, you, they can have a wedding of their own. Okay, sure. But let's factor in the, the cost of attending a mass wedding. From what I know, it changes per country from either $500 per person to $4,000 per person. That's what I've heard. So at this last mass wedding, they reported having 8,000 couples, which translates to 16,000 people attending. Let's break down the math. Let's make some averages. 16,000 times 500, if that's if they're paying the minimum base fee, and this is a donation, a forced coercive donation, you have to pay this minimum fee to get your photos and everything else. So it's not really a donation. It's, um, it's a loophole. Like, they'll take your photos for your wedding, for your wedding day, and they say you can only get these pictures if you pay the full amount of the quote-unquote donation. So anyways, let's say you pay the 500 minimum for 16,000 people that attended. If that's the case, Family Fed just made a profit of $8 million. Now let's say you're going to the upper tier like you're an American person and you're paying $4,000. The Family Fed just made a profit of $64 million. So that's that's the price we're talking about. That's what Family Fed and Hock Jahan just made in profit. Either $8 million, <laughs> which is still quite a bit for for a party or they made 64 million anywhere between there in a single day all I think is that these people didn't have a choice for someone else's profit and they're probably waking up today a few days post blessing realizing that they don't feel much different and they're not sure what they paid for and now they can't afford their own wedding because if you're an American couple you just dropped eight grand to attend the blessing and probably another four grand to fly to Korea so you're 12 grand out you're not gonna have another wedding my friends let's be let's be honest who can afford that they took your choices they take your choice and they throw a bougie-ass party that's equivalent to the Super Bowl. But it's all an illusion. And it's an illusion of choice. And it takes years to unravel what happened. So I just wanted to put some words out in case somebody's struggling with coming to terms with what happened. This is where I'm at. I think it's terribly sad that people are being stripped of their autonomy for the family fed and the moon org to make a massive profit and that's that's about it you're not really getting anything else so that's that also they opened up the second palace hawk jahan celebrating her third birthday for the year something like that and uh deceptively they announced that not only were the do no donations they were collecting to open the palace on May whatever 5th, but they also built a tourist center with an electric yacht with the donations that they forcefully got out of members with high pressure sales tactics. So now Hock Jahan is tapping into a million dollar industry on Champion Lake with that. And, and um, yeah, it's a lot. Anyways, I just want to say it's really all pr for profit. It's not, there's no, there's, it's all heavenly. It's not even heavenly deception. It's just deception. They're not selling you anything for your spirituality or transcendence. It's purely for profit. Anyways, let's go to season five. I just needed to say that stuff. We're going to season five. We're starting season five. Season five is a whole different flavor. Um, I want it to be more fun. <laughs> Sorry, that was a little heavy. But we spent a lot of time doing the hard work of deconstructing coercive control. Um, we spent the last two years doing a lot of emotional labor for deconstructing the Unification Church, as well as purity culture and the 
we did a lot of emotional labor to unpack the words to describe the loss of autonomy in the Unification Church, the human trafficking that happens in that organization, the destructive and detrimental effects of the homophobia and the racism and the hierarchy in the church that allows for this type of exploitation and power dynamics that enable that. Um, we talked about most recently the eight criteria of thought reform and a whole lot of other elements about growing up in the cult. And it's been really heavy up until now. So I kind of wanted to take that foundation and just take a break from the heavy stuff and do season five in more of a storytelling in narrative kind of way, letting things just unfold the way that they will as we talk. So I want to interview people that I have loved and that I love. And I want to dive into story time with my old friends and family. And I want to give you the opportunity of hearing what that sounds like. So for starters, for season five, we're going to dive right in to the 70s. <laughs> this is a really, really cool opportunity um, to hear the perspective of somebody that joined the Unification Church in 1970. And it might be a little weird for you to hear this, but it's framed as a loving memory. And I'm not going to change that for this person. They tell me the feeling they had when they joined was something that they'll hold on to forever. And I need you to understand that coercive control doesn't start with abuse. It starts with a smile and it continues with a smile. So I'm not going to focus on the deceptive recruiting tactics in this story or the flirty fishing, but you'll hear it. I'm not going to talk about, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to talk about the human trafficking much. I'm just going to let this story unfold. Because, yeah, people don't join cults. They join what they think is a good thing, something fun and light. And it's after those bonds happen some people call them trauma bonds. After the, the cult gains your trust and your loyalty, it's then that the compromises start stacking up. And the abuse goes with no apology, no accountability, and that's when they start asking more from you. And that's what we're going to focus on in this first episode. We're going to talk about how a cult took a young, eager girl and stripped her down to nothing. So we're going to talk about those feelings. Yeah, joining a cult, joining an abusive organization, it doesn't start with pain. It starts with love. So hold on to those words near and dear as you go into this first episode. It's called Storytime with Ami. Choice wasn't even on the menu. <laughs> So, Ami, would you like to tell us about yourself? Okay. Um, well, uh, I joined the church in 1970. Um, my cousin introduced me. He was he, he he was and is still a member. He was at the time, and um, we. It was called Unified Family. That's how I first got introduced. It wasn't called Unification Church. It's called Unified Family. And um, I was brought to this really nice old house that was really very homey. And um, there were about, I don't know, 30 members, 40 members. No, not that many. Maybe 30, 20 to 30 in that range. And they were all super welcoming. And um, I was 18 years old. And it was like very, I was really impressed with the, open feeling, especially in 1970 when things were so crazy um, in terms of people looking for meaning in their life kind of stuff. Um, and so I, you know, it was, I don't think I ever left, spiritually speaking. Uh, you know, I went home and stuff, but I was really right away mesmerized. And, um, and the people that I met then and... Um, I still have strong feelings for those particular people. 
and some of which I stayed friends with um, over the years or may have lost contact but still feel very strongly about them in a positive way. And, um, and my cousin is still, uh, he just recently went back to Korea. He had married a Korean back in 75. And um, he just recently, in the last few weeks, just moved back there with his wife. And um, so we have still strong contact. Um, the thing is, we, we, the way I was taught the principal was in a room, you know, it was, well, in those days they didn't have computers or any fancy stuff, so it was like a lecture kind of format. And um, I met people and knew people that were listening at the same time I was. And um, it was very um, pr presented to me because I was rel relatively young in a very kind of warm and simple and kind way. Um, and uh, I was really sort of awed by the whole thing. Um, and that's the way it was for me for the first couple of years. I was just in this like family environment and we were like really it was comparison to church centers it was very it was a small kind of house but it was very um comfortable environment you know uh everybody slept on the floor all together sleeping bags and stuff like that and um i don't at, at my age and i hadn't had that many high school friends i had some friends of course but not many high school friends that became like wow you know such a welcoming kind of environment and um, I still have strong positive feelings about that so it's not like it's a bad memory um, and we you know eventually learn things but I don't know how much you know at 18 and sort of attracted to the love environment stuff I really paid attention to the depths of the principle itself but um, I picked up on the positive side of things a lot in terms of um, people like re reaching out to each other and you know loving unconditionally in terms of you know the friendships and relationships they were having there. I didn't think much about um, the you know the more intense part of the principle itself. I was just enjoying myself, so to speak. Just making friends. Can I ask a few questions? Yeah, sure. Okay. So you said 1970s. 1970, the year 1970. It was the year 1970. Wow. So you're literally one of the first people to join the church in the United States. That's amazing. Um, and we're talking about the Unification Church, which was the unified... Our group was called Unified Family. Unified Family. And where did you first in, get, in, like, which location? Oh, oh, I'm sorry, yeah. That was in Berkeley. Now, at the same time, the Unification Church was forming a lot. Of course, they had a different name, too, but I don't remember it now. Um, by um, Miss Kim. Miss Kim. Mrs. Kim. I can't remember. Is that Dr. Kim or is that a yeah. different Kim? Different Kim. Okay. But she's, like, really famous. She had lots of members, and she was an amazing witnesser and became very famous. And It was called the Oakland Church because they were in Oakland. And um, that when eventually, I didn't even realize the size of the church until there was like a, um, when uh, Reverend Moon, father of Reverend Moon, came to America in 1971. So it was like a year later, or almost two years later, because it was the end of 71. Um, I know we got together in um, San Francisco at this place to have a, like a big kind of, um, workshop or whatever and lasted for a week I was amazed at the amount of people because our group was little in comparison we were 25 people or something 30 people and this was like three four hundred people and um, you know that size and this is just our local not anybody from anywhere else just our local group wow. so that was the size of her her group yeah. and um, I was like whoa I was blown over <laughs> And um, at that point, thing, also the perspective, my perspective of the church totally changed 
because I really thought it was this cute little hippie-like group of people in uh, Berkeley, and we used to go to the campus maybe to witness a little or whatever, and uh, it was a fun experience going around talking to people and stuff. And in those days, I mean, there were like different um, kinds of different types of groups in in society in terms of people were searching a lot and, and there are all different kinds of groups out there uh, different pathways to trying to find the truth in their life or the way to heaven or whatever different like transcendental uh, different Indian type uh, meditative groups or different religious groups Buddhist groups and stuff so it was a very very open time for all of that and um, so it was a whole different feeling than what exists now in society. Right. So you were looking for a community in Berkeley. Well, everybody was. That's yeah, the thing. That's what it sounds like. And um, and it was uh, now you look back and I you're like say, wow, why can't things be like that still? But in some ways it was good. But you know, things develop, grow, and change. Um, so I don't know. can I and, ask? Sure, go ahead. So I heard the infamous Ms. Kim, I believe, was with two other missionaries from Korea that started the church in the United States. Is that true? Yeah, there was a Dr. Kim, and there's Miss Kim, and David Kim. David Kim. And um, then there were other not Kim-named Korean members that were here. But I didn't know. I mean, I wasn't aware, really, of all that, because I wasn't around them, so I wasn't really right. aware of what they were doing so much. Um but they were all, all over the country in uh, developing or um, forming small, you know, different groups. And kind of, there wasn't a lot of unity between everybody right. until Father, Father Reverend Moon came. In 1971. 1971. Okay. And then he decided to mobilize everybody to really um, go out, reach out to the country and... Um, then things started to really happen in terms of picking up, you know, and the church, um, the awareness of the church and stuff like that. And um, um, I was with Dr. Ong. Of, I don't know how many people know Edwin Ong, who passed away in the past few years. And his wife is still with us. And she was sent out, one of the first uh, kind of witnessing groups that went out in 1971, early 1971, before Reverend Moon came. She was one of the first groups that went out. And um, she had just had a baby. Her son wasn't even a year old yet when she went out. And um, that was like, wow, what a sacrifice. You know, it was like, I was in awe of it. A little bit unsure of, you know, well, is that, yeah. Is that healthy for the child? Yeah, I, I, was, you know, I was a nurse. Uh, just finished nursing school, and um, I wasn't sure about that part of it so much. Actually, I didn't even finish nursing. I was still in the nursing school. I wasn't sure about that part so much, but still, um, and still are not quite sure of that part, quite frankly. Yeah. I never, I, about separating your child so that was, from the parents. That's a big concern, because you probably saw the beginnings of that uh, order of, I think, Reverend Moon deliberately told the, the women and the wives to sacrifice See, I don't know if that, I mean, they said it was from him, but I don't know, because he wasn't even in America yet when that happened. I mean, I mean that makes sense. So what year was, was there an order to have kids and then leave them for missionary work? No, no, this, 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 this all happened in the first few years, and then it stopped happening. Um, I'm sorry, the, the whole thing of mothers leaving there, I think there was a lot of flash, you know, uh, negative effects of that. So it happened for a few years. We're talking three, four years, maybe tops. And then that stopped. Yeah, that stopped happening. That, that wasn't an ongoing thing. So I, I want to circle back to that. I want to circle back to the witnessing. Um, and I want to put a tab in the nurseries because I know you had some experience with visiting the nurseries that were popping up for um, missionaries' children. Mm -hmm. um, but let's go back to... So it was all disorganized. You joined in the 70s, and then all of a sudden, 1971 came around, and you guys met. 
and there was like 300 of you in, in California. Yeah, three, 400, yeah. And what was the mission statement? Then, then people were sent out, mission statement, I don't know, I can't remember the actual well, official mission statement. The providential message, like yeah. what were you told? To reach, to go out and become um, missionaries. So a lot of people were sent out to all over the world, to some degree, somewhere. No, that, actually, I'm sorry, take that back. That came after the, ble- the 75 blessing, the blessing of the 1800 couple. And that's when a lot of people went out to different countries. The, but but in 71, it was going out to different parts of America. And uh, my cousin, Michael, was sent to, to uh, uh, West Virginia. So everybody was sent to, um, everybody uh, to a certain point was sent, uh, except for those that were still in school or whatever, like me, um, a lot of people were sent to different states around the um the country to set up kind of do missionary work so you had just graduated high school and you met these people what was so what was your conviction to to do this to to dedicate your life to this yes well at first it was really like uh not where aware like i said i wasn't aware of the intensity of things to come i was just like wow you know finally i hated high school so finally i get to meet people i kind of like and wow, I just, I just like some of like uh, like a larky, fun, you know, you know hippie-ish kind of situation for me. I mean, I was just people living together in a house, and it was like old-style house, but you know, we cooked together and we cleaned together, and it was like like fun. I wasn't even aware of the depths of the what the principal was trying to say or what people were. <laughs> future missions were going to be. I wasn't even thinking of like blessed marriages or anything. I wasn't even on that plane. You just wanted, you I just wanted having fun. You were just independent. There was a group of people you could trust. They weren't doing drugs. Or right, anything. right, right. It was really people could trust. And I got a, um, like uh, introduced to a lot of like classical music from different members. And, you know, they opened my eyes to different things that I, in a sheltered Catholic family, wasn't aware of, you know. So, Multicultural. Multicultural. How many cultures were in the first house? Well, I mean, um, well, there's, of course, Indonesian, Dr. Ong, and there was uh, people from, not so many Asian people, but people different uh, from Europe and this kind of thing. Wow, there was people from Europe already? Yeah. Were they just at Berkeley? Yeah, they met in the church. I mean, they met. At Berkeley. uh, Yeah, they didn't meet in. That came later. Okay, so they were in Berkeley for school. Yeah, 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 yeah. They met to church, right? Wow, so that's how that started. Okay, very interesting. So you were just kind of caught up in yeah, just the fun of it. (laughs) It's like hippie kind of lifestyle, you know. I mean, really, we all dressed like hippies, and you were hippies without the drugs and yeah, 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 yeah. and all that kind (laughs) of stuff. Were you still waking up at five a.m. doing hundike? Was there any like no hundike, no pledge? I never heard of the pledge. Until later, a couple of years later. Okay, so you weren't waking up at 5 a.m.? No, 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 no. None of that stuff. Um, and I didn't, like, my parents were, I was in nursing school still, and my parents were dead set against, they sent me a psychiatrist and all this kind of stuff, who said, let her do it, let her, kind of, you know, let her, exp-. yeah, like, so they were, they met, they started, like, members kind of, like, invited them over and bowled them over with kindness and all of that. So they were less reluctant to, you know, be negative about it. They, you know, they weren't open, open, but they were more, oh, well, okay, these and people Michael's don't there. seem that bad. And then Michael's there, too. And don't seem that bad and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah, your dad's great. He was always very um, cordial and yeah. funny. So yeah. I can see he's not confrontational and he yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, my family as a whole, the cousins and stuff like that, were kind of like, looked sideways at Michael for quite a few years. I bet. You know, so uh, he had to, and he did, he made an effort to overcome all that. Did? Because uh, we come from a big family, so there was a lot of you know, negativity from the family as a whole. Did, did any of your siblings join any groups around this time? No. Just you? Yeah. My brother, my oldest brother, was already married, a teacher in, in high school. Um, my other brother had 
um, just left this. He, when I was in nursing school, and I was still in nursing school, he had just left the seminary. Oh, he was studying oh, to be a priest. Right, and he did. He left. Oh. Yeah. And um, so he was also kind of on his journey. His path was totally different from mine. But he helped in some ways of saying, let her, you know, kind of like, let her do her thing. You know, like, since he wanted to do his thing, he was certainly <laughs> open for me to do my thing. You were the distraction. <laughs> That's funny. So, um, and he was supportive, you know, yeah. in that respect. Yeah. And my other brother um, was dealing with um, the, my oldest brother, who has died in the last couple of years, but he was dealing with a very, very sick child. So his mindset was totally different. Yeah. And um, so, no, they're, they're, and my mother was always like, let her do it. You know, she was always like that. She wasn't like super, it was my father that had more of the negativity actually than my mother. He's concerned. Yeah. And he, he always visited you and kept touch. Yeah, yeah, He's yeah. a really, really good guy. I, I love him so much. Yeah, he was a good guy. So, um, so that from the family viewpoint, I didn't. They were never going to be kidnappers, which came later on, the deprogramming period. Uh, they were never on like that. They weren't like looking to join the church. Although my father went to several Reverend Moon lectures. And really? Stuff. Yeah. I mean, he just loved you so much. So he did reach out to do that when they were in San Francisco or Oakland or whatever they were held. <laughs> what did he think afterwards? You know, he he. He thought that the information, I mean, I can't remember exactly everything, but he wasn't opposed to what was being said, you know. But he was a strong Catholic. So he couldn't see, well, you know, they're not diff too different from Catholics, so why can't she study in the Catholic Church? That, that was his viewpoint. Oh, my gosh. Um, when they said Father in the Moonies, was he thinking they were talking about God? Like, oh, Father, there's two Fathers. <laughs> um, well, we didn't, around our parents, we didn't really... And the lectures were usually more to the public that he went to. So the, the father, looking at Reverend Moon as the father, he wasn't really exposed to that that much. Okay, so it was, it was toned down for yeah. the public, like way toned down. Right, right. That, that was a big part. Yeah, no, no, no. They No one really referred to him like that. Oh, wow, okay. And um, But anyway, so in the 71, you know, everybody was sent out. Eventually... After I finished nursing school, I eventually went out too. And that's when my dad got negative for a while. She just finished studying to be a nurse and you're going out to join some group and I don't know where you're going kind of thing. But once again, my brother intervened and, um, you know, the negativity didn't last very long. But he, he did get real upset about that. Who, uh, how did, where, where did you get sent out? How did that start? How did... Well, was, I wasn't in the first wave like Michael and those people that went to the different states. There was another wave later on after I had finished nursing school. I even worked for six months. As a nurse? As a nurse. Oh, and then you decided to pack up and go? Jeez. And, um, and uh, we went across. Um, and uh, everyone, actually, Edwin also joined. And we just left. Uh, so I was in the van with Edwin and Marie, his wife, and their child and a few other members to drive cross country. From Berkeley? From Berkeley. What was your destination? Well, we got to, um, we, we were around, somewhere around Maryland, and then people shifted off, but I was, I was put in Baltimore for a while. And what did you do in Baltimore? It was witnessing and all that kind of stuff, and I was with um, Farley Jones. Oh, yeah. I didn't like that period of time, though. It was not, it started to like, I don't know, I, I wasn't, I, I, I guess it's either I didn't like Baltimore, the house we were in, or Farley was not really positive, he was, I think he was really depressed actually, so, um, and his wife was on a mission somewhere, and you know, it was, I, I don't know, it was not a really healthy time for me anyway, I felt not, I felt sort of you know, is this really? Yeah, you know, I started feeling really negative, and um, then they, then Edwin was sent to Vermont, and um, um, 
far, I guess, talked to him, and they, they sent me to Vermont to be with Edwin. And I loved Vermont. Vermont was like, it was like a turnaround. It was like totally different. And I was back to the old feeling of Berkeley, you know. Yeah. It was so much nicer. And um, Jeff Tollickson, I mean, a few of the Berkeley members were there. But I could tell from their spirit, their whole behavior, they were trying to, you know, latch on to the new movement thing, you know, like what, you know, they were much more aware than I was. I was still in a larky kind of mood. And um, they were like much more serious than they were in Berkeley. So I got more serious. And eventually uh, Edwin went to Boston and I followed him to Boston and Jeff Tollison stayed in, in Vermont. And I went to Boston with uh, Edwin. And I liked the house, and it was on Brookline, Mass- it was on Brookline, which I guess is on Famous Street in Boston. And it was just down the street from where John F. Kennedy was born. And I didn't know, I got into that, the whole Boston thing. It was kind of cool. And um, then the, the European members started join, joining different church centers and stuff in America. So there were people from um, Austria that joined our group. So we had the Austrians. See, other people had from England or Italy or something like that. But we got the people from Austria. And boy, was their spirit different. Oh, my gosh. You know, like, uh, I've, you know, really, you know, this intense what you think about Germany and stuff like that and Austrian spirit. Uh, and so a lot of the members were like, um, one of the brothers was such a great guy. I, but at first I didn't like him. But it became a really, we became really close, you know, I came to really appreciate the intensity of his spirit and stuff like that, but at first I didn't like him. His father was in the, he was a Nazi, you know, so he had that background, but they weren't really Nazis. His father was forced in the army. Wow. And so, anyway, so, but at first you're like, you're looking sideways at him because we're talking about 70s and it was still pretty fresh, the whole German World War II stuff, and um, but anyway, they, we got to really love these people, and they became really close to Edwin and, and um, Marie Ong. There's still there's still a group of them that's in the Upper New York that are still very very close. That are from that Austrian group, and Marie. What can you tell me? Like what brought you guys close together? What was like an experience you had in Boston with these people? Like what happened? Like a story, if you can remember one. Huh. Um, Your favorite. If I can remember one. Uh, did you guys live together? Would they cook? Would you fundraise together? Did oh, sure, we did all that. We witnessed together and fundraised together. We didn't have jobs. We witnessed and fundraised, and fundraising was maintaining us. And um, financially, financially, what were you selling? Um, candy, candles. Big thing was candles back in those days. The, there was a central like candle making factory uh, somewhere near D- in DC, I think, or in New York, either DC or New York. Somewhere I was not near, and we used to get these shipment of these candles, and we'd go out and sell them. And I wasn't so good at it at first, um, but. And the Austrian members were way much better than I was. And at first I was resentful, but I got to see how, especially this one um, sister from Austria, Truvi was her name. And um, she's, she's so beautiful and so warm and engaging and loving. And, um, but she was really, you know, I keep to the, the regime. You know, she always she had her focus, you know. And eventually after a while, I, I picked up on that. But it was fun at first. I mean, Leo, that's the Austrian brother that was really <clears throat> strict. Um, I just remember some of the fun times we tried to, like, uh, do fun things together. And he was, like, this, still this really um, stoic-y kind of guy that didn't crack a smile or anything like that. And then we started, I mean, just as they were warm, I was starting to see their strengths and how good they were at things that I could learn from because I was, like, not focused person and try to learn to be more focused. That's what they kind of taught me to try to be. We were trying to, we're starting to warm him up, you know. 
And I just remember times when we'd go to restaurants or something like that to eat after a long day fundraising and how he started telling stories and, and um, of his life, you know, things like that. And, um, but I can't remember specific incidents. It's kind of long yeah. time. I'm sorry. It's like That's 50 okay. years ago. <laughs> um, well, you have to have a pretty strong back to carry candles. How many candles were you carrying or? good question we had their candles were made in like these little, little like brandy snifter glasses but not the big kind of brandy snifter glasses, but the smaller ones and there would be the boxes would be like this at least a dozen yeah and how, how do you remember how, what your pitch was my pitch was not the pitch i developed on mft because this was pre-mft and it was sort of like again it's like fun and do this and you know, it's like for the church, for the kids, you know, like this for kind of you. <laughs> you know, this kind of stuff. And, you know, this really, and we were, I mean, people didn't know MFT. MFT wasn't formed yet. What so people didn't know. This is in 73, 72, okay. 73 now. So you didn't know what you were doing. You were just fundraising. Yeah, this was before the development of MFT. Okay. Because uh, I was of the first wave of MFT, so I could tell you that yeah. with all, you know, awareness. Um, so uh, this was before that. So was the money that you made to buy these houses that y'all were living in, these church houses? or We were renting, and um, it was just to live for us at that time. It was really just to live. So how much were you averaging? I was doing good. That's why they sent me an MFT. What so I was a good fundraiser. Uh, what would you say was your daily intake? Uh, well, I mean, we, only, we, did only did, we didn't do it for the intensity of MFT. We might have gone out for a few hours, but I'd make $50 a pop. You know, for in the seventies, that was doing good for a few hours, wow. and um, so they kind of eased you into it because later we'll talk about your MFT weight. Yeah, <laughs> this was this is different, way different. This was like fun. I loved it. You know, like hopscotching. Yeah, hustling. You know, this you know, just larking down the street and going out to people and like that. It was totally different, but um, but. Uh, and in those days, we went door to door. We didn't even think about like parking lots and stuff like that yet. But somebody started the parking lot thing, and then that was, oh, better hurry up and tell everybody else. It works. It works so well. Oh and then, then we started doing the parking lot stuff, and it was it was way more fun. And then we started selling that. We didn't sell the candles because that was you know you'd be out there all day in uh, out there like that. It was really hard to hold the box. Um, so that we'd sell peanuts or candies or things like that. But it was fun. People people gave, you know, it was like they hadn't seen it before, right? Yeah. This was way before all the negativity and the MFT and negativity started coming out. So soliciting, was that a thing before you guys started? Like were people selling things in the parking lots? Before we started in the church? No, in the world in general. No. We were the first ones to do it. You were literally the first solicitor. to do sit in the parking lot thing. Because yeah. I mean, because now that's a thing. E- yeah. Everybody, non Moonies, Moonies. Yeah, no, we were the Scouts. first ones. The, um, <laughs> oh my the, gosh. Now, just, okay, Girl Scouts and, and like Girl Scout cookies and stuff, they would sell at the door. Yeah. But not. That's, that was going on for a long time. But not going around in the parking lot and like actually aggressively going up to people. Scrimmaging, high pressure sales. That was us. Yeah. Okay. We started that. And um, wow. So. Uh, you heard it here. <laughs> yeah, we definitely started that. And um, they even after we were doing that for a couple of years, they started uh, other groups. Um, start like they call themselves the Job Corps or something like that. They started sending kids out to do stuff. But that didn't even last that long. And that, that was just for a few couple of years that I saw that happening. But And it wasn't even, they didn't even do it to the degree we did it, were to you, the degree. Were they Moody's too? Or no, no, no. Oh, just I'm saying other people picking up. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. So, um, okay. So my question is, did the, did the thought of danger ever come up? No, not then. Then it never, ever occurred to me about danger. That didn't come until I was on MFT for a few years. And, uh, but then, oh, no, it was fun. You know, I even remember being out all day selling peanut bags of peanuts, and it was freezing. I'm talking freezing out. But I was so into it at that point. 
and I wasn't even an MFT member yet. And, um, and all day I spent, it was like a chance to really do well in the cold, you know, selling these bags of peanuts. I mean, we're talking freezing. We're talking Boston. Yeah. So we're saying like negative. But I had, yeah, really, really cold. And there were people stopping and buying just because I was out there like that. Freezing. They stopped by, they stopped their car to give me a dollar or two dollars or whatever. Oh my gosh. You must look homeless. Well, I wasn't dressed that bad, but <laughs> they might have thought I was. Oh, speaking of clothes, uh, did you get an allowance from this that you were making? No, no, they just would, um, we, I, I never held on to money myself, but whenever we needed clothes or whatever like that, I was taken out to buy clothes. You really? Know, Marie or somebody would take. They would buy you clothes? Oh yeah, sure. Wow. That's I didn't have... My parents were still like about me at that point, wow. so I didn't get stuff from home. Yeah, yeah. And um, wow. and uh, so yeah, no, to live or whatever they that was all paid for through our fundraising and stuff. They pimped you guys. <laughs> they didn't do that for us. We never got clothing allowance on SCF or OLT. Well, things are so different. If they're, I I don't know about that kind of. This is the beginning, though, so I yeah, can see yeah, how it was yeah, slowly. Yeah, yeah, I, I think after, and that's 50-something years ago. So I, I don't know about that providence use, you know. I, I still think that members, even as, as difficult as it is, they should focus on, if they're going to do it, they should focus on college campuses and stuff. But anyway, um, I, I'm not a strong MFT fan anymore, you know, that way, because too many... The way society is now, I just don't think that's a safe place. Well, you saw a lot of uh, dangerous and horrible things on MFT. You know, when I got to MFT, yeah. So before we go there, uh, you guys, what were you doing with these homes? You were you were recruiting members. You were fundraising. You were... Yeah, there was witnessing going on, but Trudy, Truvy, and um, and members like that were strong witnesses. Maybe we get a lot of and Tirza. Did you ever meet Tirza? I think her name is familiar. Yeah, Tirza joined. Uh, who is her? I forget who her spiritual mother. So Somebody in our group because she she joined in where I was. So um, was it Truvy? Is her spiritual mother? I can't remember now. Anyway, she joined in that group. She's strong right away. Strong member, you know. Wow, and um. And uh, and Richard Cohen. I mean, a lot of we we got some really interesting people in our through that. You heard of Richard Cohen? I've heard some terrible things. Oh yeah, Richard Cohen. Cohen, but he wasn't in that time. He was. Um, he got anyway. He got. Um, I don't know what ultimately happened to him. I know some of the history of him, but I don't know what ultimately happened to him. But at that time, when he first joined, I think Tirza was his spiritual mother I can't remember exactly and he was so I really just really gravitated to him he was such a um had such a dynamic kind of personality and you know and um and uh he was really and he was very very talented and they they developed the new hope singers in Boston well no that was a nationwide group that they developed and um, and there was members from all over. And they they that kind of music isn't popular now, but um, it was like kind of like um, um, in those days in the seventies, churches were still very popular, and there would like be the Mormons singing, and you know different churches had these really popular singing groups, and so the New Hope Singers was on that level, that singing very you know not always religious songs, but you know kind of God-centered-ish kind of songs. And um, and so I sent, because I knew some people on the group, I sent all this information and a tape of his, his singing to them. Because I really thought, you know, he's wasted here in Boston. He should join, because he was so talented, he should join them. And so he's, it was, I guess, a, a door open to him that and, his, and who he became and stuff like that. So uh, he always, like, we always were close in that uh, respect. So you got him on the choir. I got him 
connected to somebody who got him on the choir. So New Hope is very popular. I mean, I went to New Hope school. Uh, yeah, New who, Hope. New Hope. That's New what Hope. the church was. Was New Hope. Who came up with that? Somebody. I no don't even idea. know. No. New Hope. No. So just just full trigger warning. Richard Cohen uh, started basically conversion therapy. Uh, I don't know if he started it, but he certainly f- de- developed it. Well, I, I mean, he's his own. I, I don't know if he was like the original conversion therapy guy, but he certainly started his own group. Yeah. Because I knew then, I knew when I first met him, because I met his boyfriend and stuff, I knew he was he was gay. I mean, I knew that already, you right. know. Yeah. So um, it wasn't a big surprise to me when all, I just didn't focus on it. I didn't, yeah. I didn't think about stuff like that, you know, and what effect that the church would have and stuff. I, you know, oh, right. I didn't, the demand for purity and I didn't think about all that kind of stuff. So um, I, I just wasn't on my wavelength. I mean, I wasn't that kind of, I didn't get into sexual relationships and stuff like that myself till way later. So, um, well, I can tell you that Richard Cohen's, uh, conversion therapy harmed a lot of second gen. Well, I mean, it's something that you, I would think, cause I certainly don't know anything about it in terms of how it works or anything. Um, I would think it would be extremely hard, very, very difficult. And you'd have to be extremely committed for it to work at all and never thought it could work. But anyway. I mean, I heard about it stuff, but in fact, he was on like Ricky Lake show. Do you know that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was on he was nationwide TV. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you think he was happier when he was with his boyfriend, or <laughs> did you see a change? I don't. Th- I think he was so committed to the principle, but there was always a part of him that was still that was still you know something that he chose to separate from in his life. And I don't honestly know if he completely separated from it. You know, I don't know. Yeah. And that's not, you know, I never, it's none of our business. Yeah. I, just, I never really yeah. thought I, much about that kind of stuff. I, just because it's a podcast, I want to represent the people, you know, but that, that were harmed by the fallout of the early members. But just, Right. But was it his fault or their parents' fault? You uh, know what I mean? Or was it, it's the whole environment. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Homophobic, very homophobic environment. Well, um, yeah. Yeah. But let's move on. Uh, So you were talking about the New Hope singers, and he got shipped off to. Well, yeah, they they went all over the world. Oh, wow. They went all over. Okay. They went everywhere. You kind of launched him into his career. Really? Wow. That's. I mean, yeah, that's big. So, um, so yeah, so he became a very important member soon after that, you know, all that started for him. But, I mean, it's, it's him. I, I just knew somebody that knew somebody kind of thing, you know. He would have done it anyway. Yeah, he could have well, well, well done it without me. Um, but anyway, so, you know, so lived this larky life. I mean, I was actually extremely happy in Boston with the um, the Ongs and their son. You know, he's just, at that point, he was only a couple years old, two years old. And I loved children. So it was that piece of it was so cool. And, you know, it was just. So you're just living with the Austrians and the Ongs. And yeah. And then I, met, I had met a girl. I was working before I moved on to across the country. I had met this girl in a hospital I worked in for a while, and she uh, she wanted to go back for a master's apparently, and she went to Rutgers. And I met her there, you know. So it was so funny. She wanted to go to Rutgers, but she ended up going to a school in Boston. So did you ever think about going back to nursing? Um, when you were in Boston, were you thinking? No, no. Never. Why, why? Not when I was, because I was too happy doing the things I was doing. You had gotten a nice career. With yeah. Pay, uh, yeah. And you didn't think about it. No. That things, it was all larky. We're talking like, oh, da-da-da-da-da, still in this larky kind of thing. None of this stuff was tough. And then, <laughs> then, <laughs> whoa, they started MFT. <laughs> and I didn't even know what that meant. But by name, they sent me to MFT. 
Eileen Vogel. Great fundraiser. Well, no, they just sent me the NFT. Because I was like, um, I wasn't a strong witnesser. I never was. And I didn't have any other, I wasn't a leader or anything like that. So I was a very, um, it wasn't because I was great at MFT. It was just that um, it was a logical choice. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was a kind of, I was at the age, you know, I could go, I How could do it. I was in my 20s, you know, early 20s. Um, okay. And, um, and, then that, and then we went to this, I still didn't know it was coming. We went to Belvedere. And we had this great, wonderful workshop for a week, two weeks. And it was like all this fun, getting together and, you know, singing. Uh, and and it's really intense. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, wow. <laughs> they started these MFT teams. Who was there lecturing you guys? In- oh, I can't. You know, can't Neil Sloan, uh, uh, Farley Granger, people of that era. And then, bam, the team started. And I was like. What? What did I get myself involved in? It was so funny. And we went somewhere. I think we went to uh, the first teams went in New York. Because there wasn't that many at first. And uh, we went to Long Island. And I can remember that in Long Island. And um, it was like the summertime. The tannis I got. <laughs> I was loving that part. And we went to, uh, once again, it was in the early 70s, so still like we'd meet all these different religious groups and church groups and stuff like that and you know so there was still this aware like this feeling like i want to be involved in in the in social in society you know so that it was pretty easy to fundraise but i i didn't like it at first at all well where were you living um we'd live in um well when we were close to a church center we would live there or we'd go to motels or things like that. Okay, you guys did go to motels. Oh, yeah. Did you stay in motels every night? No, no. Where else would you stay? At church center. We were close, kind of close. There was a church center in in, the, in Long Island. And we were Cunnington, I think it was. Anyway, we were kind of close still to the heart of the... We didn't get out into the country yet. Okay, so they started you off kind comfortable. Of, yeah, but... Much harder than when I did MFT in, in Boston. Like I said, it was just a few hours. But this was like 10, 12 hours. And I was like, what did I get in myself? It was so intense. Uh, what were you selling? Candles. Again? Yep, candles. Oh, my God. How's your back? <laughs> it's okay. Um, and uh, candy. We did that. Flowers didn't come right away. They came a little bit later. Uh, but, you know, stuff like that. Easy. I mean carry kind of things to sell so you would sell candy how much would you make on mft at first i wasn't making that much because i was really i was like like a deer in headlights kind of about where my life was at that point you know and uh confused how they convinced you to do this uh, oh i wasn't convinced i was sent yeah the mindset was different i guess i wasn't it's not like you sat there and made a choice like should i stay here or should i go on I was sent. It was like you were deployed? Yeah. It's like I was in the army and I was deployed. Exactly. Oh, my God. And um, so it wasn't like choice wasn't even on the menu, you know. I'm going to stop the interview here because this is a lot of details for you to take in. As you've heard Ami say, choice wasn't even on the menu The first 45 minutes of this interview kind of show you what we talked about in the beginning. The feeling, the bonding that has to take place for you to get to this point where you're being trafficked with no choice of your own, where you're being exploited with no real explanation. This is the very beginning of the unification church and i really wanted you to hear this because it was rotten from the start so let's take a break for the next few weeks it's going to take me a little bit to come around and publish the next part of this interview If you haven't already figured it out, Ami is the woman who got lured into 
adopting me essentially without actually adopting me. The system that put Ami into my life has taken advantage of Ami from the very beginning. And it continued to do so until the very end. So this is a very personal story for me. And Ami is very receptive to questions. Um, While we have her, please ask questions. She is more than gracious enough to answer. And I love her very dearly. So please, let's protect her. Let's take care of her. And I just want to say thank you. So join me next time when we go into the second part of this interview with Ami the beginning years of MFT. Until then, take care of your mental health and we will talk again soon.